let's take us all the way back to 1983. What was your role at the time? What was your job? I was head of CID, head of the Criminal Investigation Department. Right. And Linda Mann is found raped and murdered by the Black Pad, a footpath in Narborough. And Narborough is a small village, so presumably something like this was really uncommon. So talk me through what happened. Well, the first we knew of this was on the evening of the 20th of November, 1983. Linda's mother and father had gone out for the evening and uh, left Linda to go to a friend's house in Enderby. And when they got back, she wasn't there. So they started to look for her, visited the friend where she'd been, and she'd not arrived there, nobody had seen her. And of course then they started to search the village and uh, contacted the police. Bearing in mind by that time it was 12 o'clock, there was very little one could do except walk the streets and see if we could find her. And then the next thing was an ambulance man is riding his bike up the black pad to go to work just before seven in the morning. And uh, he sees Linda's body in the wood by the footpath. And, of course, he reported it. Then, you know, we're aware of the body has been found. And the interesting thing about the black pad is that it's not really well known, is it? Because it's a footpath in the village, isn't it? So you'd almost have to be local. Yes, it's a footpath between the main A46, Leicester Coventry Road, and a village road going from... uh, Enderby to Narborough by the, uh, what was then the Carnhays Hospital. I mean, there was iron railings on one side, a tall hedge in a field on the other, and behind the railings was uh, woods and shrubs and bushes and trees, and it was dark and well covered. And of course, it wasn't used a great deal, you know, just by local people that knew it as a shortcut to get into. So I suppose this is starting to indicate to you that this might be somebody who knows the area. So what's the next thing that you do? I mean, I'm called at home, it was just after seven, to say that the body had been found. And of course, I arrived there about half past seven, quarter to eight. And we find that Linda has been dragged into the wood and raped and uh, strangled. And of course, we set a forensic investigation going, called the pathologist. He examines the body at the scene and we then go to the uh, Royal Infirmary for a post-mortem. So presumably the investigation starts and what's the first thing you do? Do you start house-to-house inquiries and start taking statements? Yes, I mean the first thing we do is house in the immediate vicinity. Once we've got established we spread the area to encompass anybody that might be passing. I mean, the area determines the search area, if you like, and the area where you're going to make your inquiry. I mean, the ambulance station is nearby, and, of course, the ambulance man was seen and interviewed, and we did an inquiry at a nearby house, and the only thing that came out of that was the occupant heard what was a scream at around about 7pm, which was shortly after Linda left her home. She just thought it was children messing about and didn't give it another thought, didn't go out to look and 
We just heard that, and that was the only evidence we got of anything happening at that time. And, uh, you know, from then on, we went into the sort of full range of a murder inquiry, house-to-house inquiries, local suspects, people with previous convictions, anything that uh, you could think of. But there was an absolute absence of any sightings of Linda, and there was no information coming in at all, nothing to go on. We had the um, forensic people there at the scene, but the only evidence we got was from the body, which was the perpetrator was a Group A PGM-1 secretor. I was going to ask you about that, because this is pre-DNA fingerprinting. And is that normal to do that sort of testing on a case like this? Is it something that's standard at the time? Yes, I mean, we got semen. You know, the only thing we could get was blood test from the semen. Mm. And of course, that amounted to about 14% of the population. And you were doing house-to-house inquiries. So Colin Pitchfork, who we now know, obviously, was the perpetrator, was he interviewed as part of the first round with Linda Mann? Or? On the first round, he hadn't moved in. He was in the process of buying the house and moving in. He was seen, and he uh, gave an alibi as much as anybody else could, that he was at home, didn't go out, his wife was at night school, and he was looking after the child. So I suppose at this point you've done everything you can. Are there any local suspects? I mean, that's the thing about Colin Pitchfork. We now know that he had previous convictions for flashing, essentially. But at this point, presumably, you wouldn't know any of this. We weren't aware of the conviction because it, the conviction wasn't local. It was out in uh, Marky Bosworth area before the Marky Bosworth court as a juvenile for indecent exposure. And, of course, his age was another factor of his offence. So, I mean, it wasn't given the priority that it probably would do today. I mean, we were looking at people with convictions for offences of indecency and offences against women and all those sort of people, whether they lived in the area or visited the area, they are all suspects. And, of course, they were interviewed and eliminated as far as possible. So I suppose at this point, the case then goes cold, really, until 1986, when a similar thing happens to Don That's right. I mean, we watched every incident that occurred in the interim period, anything which cropped up. I mean, there were numerous incidents involving uh, women reporting, seeing somebody or things like that. They were all investigated to a negative result. And eventually, I mean, we just got uh, two or three officers looking at outstanding inquiries and, uh, you know, just keeping a watching brief on it. And, of course, then on the um, 31st of July, Dawn Ashworth goes on a similar journey to see a friend, but this time going from Enderby to Narborough. And, of course, she never returned home. Parents were waiting for her intent on going out that evening at seven o'clock and she never came. She was reported missing and uh, we were immediately told and of course started a full-scale search. I mean there was similar thoughts going through our mind 
of loads of different times of the year, different times of the day, there was a young girl, same age, missing in the area. And uh, we looked at it right from the start as a potential murder. And then we started to search of the area. So she was found on Ten Pound Lane, which again is a, it's a footpath. It's a footpath, yes. The body was found on the Saturday. She went missing on the Wednesday, I think it was. And the body wasn't found until the police officer with his dog was searching around Ten Pound Lane. And uh, he found her black leather jacket slung under a hedge. And then a little bit later with the dog found the body covered in nettles and straw and hay. And she was in a similar state to um, Linda. And you had a suspect fairly quickly, didn't you, with that one? Yes, I mean, we'd started off with the house-to-house inquiries and the searches, etc. And uh, during the searches, a lad named Buckland was seen showing, you know, an interest in the search parties that were working on the embankment of the motorway, such that he drew attention to himself. We established who he was. And in fact, he'd been interviewed on the previous occasion. We then established he'd got a motorbike and a similar motorbike was seen under the motorway bridge on the A46, which is not far from £10 Lane. And of course, he couldn't explain why his motorbike was there and where he was. So he was arrested and uh, we found that uh, he was a PGM-1 secreter, Group A. But again, it only left us with a percentage of the population and not an individual. And when you spoke to him, he confessed, didn't he, to Don's? He did. I mean, we were a little bit careful about him because uh, he wasn't a full shilling. We wanted to be reasonable, fair to him, so I had his interview taped. So he was interviewed at Wigson Police Station and his interview was tape recorded and the solicitor had access to the tape and he made certain admissions during the interview to such an extent that uh, we got to do something with him, either charge him or let him go. We couldn't question him any further because we'd be oppressive. So we charged him and put him before the court. And of course then there was the question of this forensic evidence that was there, which ostensibly was uh, circumstantial at that stage. And you had a brainwave, didn't you, at this point? Well, we questioned him over uh, Linda Mann and he's totally denied all knowledge of it and we got no forensic evidence to connect him with it. And of course I was aware of Sir Alec Jeffrey's work with the DNA. So how had you heard of that to begin with? I'd read it in the Mercury, and this seemed something which we could use forensically, which had not been used before. So was this the immigration case, the one that... It was the immigration case, yeah. yes. And you got a brainwave. Well, it put the individual down by his blood to a group of one, from a percentage of the population to one, So what did you do? Did you ring Alec up? Yes. Well, my forensic science man rang him first to say, could he do it? And he said, yes. So I rang him and said what we'd got. 
and he said he thought he could do it. So presumably you then have to get the samples to him, and he has to, yes, to do then, the test. Yes, then there was a problem started. I mean, we needed to establish this lad was in contact with the first girl because we were ostensibly fine with the second girl. We thought we got enough to charge him and convict him on that. But we felt that the two murders were connected. We needed to connect that first murder. And um, speaking to Sir Alec, it was a question of getting the samples to him and getting authority from the Home Office, Forensic Science Laboratory, to use the samples. And, of course, they were concerned that if they were used and destroyed, then evidence was being destroyed and all sorts of problems. Anyway, we sent him the samples in August, and it was only the sample of Linda Manwent, and uh, that came back saying, definitely not. And how did Alec break the news to you? So I've heard a story that he rang you at some ungodly hour to give you the results. Is that true? We had a conversation, and, uh, you know, I accepted what he was saying because he said, definitely, it's not him. And then it was, what are we going to do next? And I thought, right, well, we better see whether he's done the other one as well. So I sent the sample for Dawn Ashworth to him. And, of course, that came back in September, but it came back with a bonus. The fact that the two samples are identical and that one man was responsible for both murders. So, of course, it strengthened my arm in as much as I'd got a double murder and one man responsible for both murders. Mm. And, of course, that was irrefutable. So I suppose the, the bad news was that you hadn't got the right man in custody, but the good news was is that you did have the DNA fingerprint of the perpetrator for this yes. double murder, so it, it had kind of two sides to it, really. Yes. I mean, it demonstrated that one man was responsible for the death of both girls, and he was still at large and, and I felt, in the area. Which must be scary, really, to think that somebody's still out there. Yes, and is he going to come again? That was a big thing, a big thing for the people in the area as well. And, of course, it strengthened my arm in what I wanted to do, or what could I do. That was the other thing. So I remember hearing that you had your next brainwave, and that was to do a dragnet. But I remember hearing that there was a particular case that you remembered that made you think about doing that. Yes, I mean, I looked at what we'd done so far. I mean, we'd scoured the two villages, we'd interviewed all the men, and we'd got nowhere. So it means that there's something was wrong somewhere. There was somebody lying. We felt that the bloke was still in the area. And how do we find him? We couldn't do the same thing again. So we got to put something else to it. And, of course, we were talking about fingerprints, and, of course, it came to me that we'd already done fingerprints on a previous occasion where a whole area was mass-fingerprinted, looking for a suspect, and that was successful. So I thought, well, if we can do that with the blood, it's the same as the fingerprint, and it'll bring an individual up. So you have this brilliant idea of doing a dragnet, how does everyone take it when you suggest this? Are people sceptical? or There was quite a few doubters in the interim period of deciding what we were going to do. There was a question of getting the support for it to be done. And, of course, I got the advantage of saying, well, 
There's two girls murdered. What are you going to do? Are we going to do this or not? And of course, you know, you're putting a gun to people's head, really. Because it was a massive undertaking. So talk me through. What did you have to put together? Well, first off, we got to get um, the people. Now, he'd already got the names and addresses of all the men in the area from two lots of house-to-house inquiries. Then we got to get somebody to do the testing, and that was put down to David Werrett at the um, Home Office Forensic Science Laboratory at Aldermaston, and they said that they could do it. We got to get authority from the Home Office for them to do it. So there's quite a lot of to and froing with getting it done and uh, getting them to talk to Sir Alec. And this is where it became in really handy, those first tests that showed that it was somebody PGM1 plus positive. If they looked like they were in that 10%, they would then go down the route to have the DNA fingerprinting test. No, they'd do that from the blood test. Not everybody would have to have the DNA. Those that were not group A would be immediately eliminated from the testing. So it was sort of a two-stage process. So it was quite it was useful, two, yes, that's yeah, right. having that early knowledge of, of what what the yes. biological background was to this person. So you could then kind of streamline it a little bit better. Couldn't yes, you? I mean it was a bit of a bind because it was Christmas intervening, and we decided that we'd start in first week in January, and uh, we lined up all the plea botanists, plea surgeons, and uh, we arranged various venues but of course we also looked at the people that were coming we sent everyone a letter that we wanted to come in and we decided it would be initially the men between um, 15 and 40 and we sent everyone that we wanted to come in a letter when we wanted them to come and asked them to bring the letter with them and also a form of identification including a photograph so we would you know just have some control over who was coming. So, I mean, with the letter and then the driving licence or a passport or something like that, we could see who they were. And if we weren't happy when they came, we could go back to their neighbours and what have you with a photograph and check them out. I mean, we were aware that there was a potential for someone to dodge the system. And it was a huge thing. Didn't you have over 5,000 men eventually take part in it? We had... 5,508 that we took, 3,624 were negative and there were 1,800 under examination at the time we caught Pitchfork. So it goes on for quite a long time. Are you starting to then get pressure to wind it down because you haven't found the person yet? Yes, there there was some pressure coming from the top. How long is it going to take? But, of course, we were going to take as long as it was necessary. Was everyone still behind it? Yes. I think the longer it went on, the more people got behind it. Determination just grew, it sounds like. Well, they could see what was happening. But, of course, there was also other DNA cases starting to take off elsewhere. I mean, there was one at Liverpool. Oh, I didn't know about this. It was a murder case, and it involved a DNA But, of course, it was the individual, and they hadn't got to look for him. They knew who he was. And it was just Just, a question of the comparison mm. with the debris left at the scene. 
So I remember reading somewhere that at some point you gave a press conference and you knowing that somebody would try and slip through said what you needed was that somebody would eventually let slip about what had happened. And it turned out to be very prophetic. Right from the word when we set out, we realised that that was a possibility. And that somebody probably wouldn't be able to keep their mouth shut. Yeah. So it was Ian Kelly in the end, wasn't it? So how did all of that happen? I know that Ian apparently was at a pub early August in 1987. And he's out with workmates, isn't he? And he lets slip that Colin Pitchfork has made him go and take this test for him. He's tried to get lots of different men at his work to, yeah. to, to do it for him. Eventually, Ian does it. But you don't find out until September. So what happened there? This happened in uh, August. Ian Kelly was working at the um, Hampshire's Bakery and a group of them decided to have a night out at the Clarendon Arms public house in Stonegate. Whilst they were there, Kelly is overheard by a girl who also worked at the bakery and he said that he'd taken a blood test for Pitchfork and Pitchfork had asked him to do it because he'd already taken it for somebody else who was frightened of the needle. Does she ask Ian about it, do you know, or does she...? She was aware of what was going on. She was alert to the instances on the television and on the paper, and she realises the implications of what she'd heard. She waited for two or three days to see a policeman that she knew. So I think it was on the 18th of August... She spoke to him and uh, told him what had taken place and he immediately contacted the incident room, told us what she told him and of course we immediately sorted out who Pitchfork and uh, Kelly were. This must have been everything you were waiting for. So what happens? This news comes in, it must happen quite quickly. We got everything all on the computer. So immediately they come in with the names. We knew who Pitchfork was. He was in the system. He'd been invited. We knew that he'd given blood ostensibly, turned up with his passport, and that was all documented. And, of course, we didn't know who Kelly was, but, of course, we immediately found out who Kelly was. So it was a question of then, you know, they've got to come in quick. Do you knock on both doors at the same time? Same time. What time in the morning was that? Yes, a seven o'clock knock. Well, you've got to go early because uh, in case they go out and go to work and mm. what have you. So it was a, you know, an early morning knock and he and his wife and children were in the house. And, I mean, no sooner the officers got to the door and interviewed him that he put his hands up and said it was him. So he's confessing pretty much immediately. Immediately. And is he remorseful or is he just... I've been caught and that's it, or... Well, I mean, it was clearly on his mind, the fact that he'd done the two murders and the fact that he'd used Kelly to take his blood sample for him on his behalf. So, I mean, he was aware that the game was up pretty quickly. And then presumably you have to interview him. What was that like? Was it fairly straightforward? What's he like as a person, I suppose? No remorse whatsoever. I mean, Kelly showed some remorse, obviously. He got dragged into it and uh, he realised what the consequences were going to be for him. 
but Pitchfork, I mean, he showed no remorse whatsoever and he's quite cold and calculated. He denied a lot of his activities, but of course the pathological evidence showed what he'd been up to. So even in the face of this overwhelming evidence, he's still, to some extent, not taking responsibility for it? No. He's admitting that he's killed the girl, but he's not going into any details of what he did or... So that obviously must have been a massive relief. I mean, you've made history. What was that like? It's a feeling that you never forget. It's not the first. It wasn't the last. But, I mean, there was a great deal of satisfaction that, you know, you'd won. And he's been in jail, or he was in jail for getting on for 30 years, I think. Yeah. Released, and then... Brought back in again. Though I did read recently that they're talking about releasing him again. What do you think about all that? I don't think they should. They let him out on the last occasion. And of course, as soon as he got out and has got a little bit of liberty, he's chatting up girls again. He's not changed. He's not likely to change, I don't think. He's still sexually active and uh, he's still thinking about it. And uh, he's likely to do it again. I forecast that this is what would happen, and it did. It's not just these two girls, there's another girl as well that he also... Tell me about that, because there was another girl who escaped. Yes. She was a girl that was walking home at Newton Harcourt, and he was in his car, pulled alongside her, tried to pull her inside, and she ran off. And I mean, there was another victim there. So it sounds to me like your feeling is that he should never be released because he's shown no sign of remorse and he's still, the behaviour's not changed. You know, if he'd shown any sign of remorse, he wouldn't have been chatting up girls again. You know, I think it's in him. He's a psychopath. There's a huge legacy from this case and it's why I'm writing about it in this chapter because it's the first forensic case and it's known for two things. So one is that it's the first time that it's used in forensics and somebody has been released who was innocent on the basis of genetic evidence. Also that it's the first time that genetic evidence is used to convict somebody. So there's a massive legacy there. Do you feel the legacy? Yes, I mean, it was something we were aware of. And it was something that we did a lot to try and publicise, to get it around the world. You've succeeded. We did. <laughs> no, I mean, there was a lot of pressure when you're dealing with murders, it's not easy. 